This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona filling in for Khalil Ekulona. When you feel like you're at your lowest point and that no one understands what you're going through, an expert telling you how things can get better can sound like, well, nonsense. Like a pie in the sky dream with little relation to what you've actually got going on. That's where peer support comes in. Today, we're talking with people who have found their footing by talking with other folks who have been there and done that. But first, last week, a federal judge granted class action status in a lawsuit on behalf of 104 Latino workers who were affected by a raid on a slaughterhouse in East Tennessee. In April 2018, agents from the IRS, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and the Tennessee Highway Patrol converged on the Southeastern Provision Plant in Bean Station. It was one of the largest workplace raids in U.S. history. Tennessee Lookout reporter Jamie Satterfield has been following this story, and she joins me now. Jamie, welcome back to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me. So the plaintiffs have been granted class action status in this case. Tell me about the lawsuit in question. What does it allege happened? You know, uh, the basic allegations in this lawsuit are that uh, federal agents from the Department of Homeland Security, the Internal Revenue Service, uh, ICE, um, and, along with the Tennessee Highway Patrol, uh, that they went to a federal judge and they said, hey, you know, we're investigating this plant owner. He's paying employees in cash, and we want to go in and search for records that might show us uh, proof of tax evasion. But instead, for months, they had been planning this as an immigration raid and specifically targeted anybody with brown skin. I mean, that was the goal. If you were white, you weren't touched in this thing. Um, there are allegations of excessive force uh, and, uh, and, and really some, some tacky behavior. Uh, an officer taking a selfie with, with a lot of these workers loaded on a bus for transport to an armory without any evidence of wrongdoing. Uh, one agent accused of putting a gun to a head uh, to the head of a Latino worker uh, who was using the bathroom and made him do that in public. Uh, an agent punching a worker for no apparent reason. And then uh, what we believe was captured on video, the same agent putting his boot on the neck of a worker. Um, so essentially, this, this lawsuit alleges that there was a conspiracy um, to violate uh, the civil rights of, of these workers and, and their guarantee of equal protection under the law. Who filed the lawsuit? It was actually filed by some nonprofit uh, legal organizations, including the Southern uh, Poverty Law Center. Uh, these groups are very adept at handling class action, action cases. Uh, and in this case, particularly involving uh, migrant workers, um, who believe that they have been uh, mistreated. Well, and what is the significance of it being a class action suit? What difference does that make? You know, it's huge because you have workers uh, who some of them were, uh, did not have a legal status in this country. And as a result of this raid, they were deported. So uh, if each worker had to pursue a separate lawsuit Think about the worker who gets sent back, uh, let's say, to Mexico. That worker is going to have to knowingly return to the United States a crime 
um, in order to pursue uh, justice in this case. And, and also uh, the expense of that is enormous. And so the judge, uh, Travis uh, McDonough, who is a, a federal judge in the Eastern District, he found that um, that was unfair, uh, that process. And so what's going to happen now, thanks to class action certification, is there will be one trial uh, based on, on one set of facts, and, and should the workers prevail and any damages be awarded, then all of these workers would be entitled to that. Now, as more details about this case started to come out, what did you notice? You know, uh, um, I think that what I remember, frankly, I live in East Tennessee, and when this raid went down, um, it was very clearly an immigration raid. Um, and I think the public generally thought that was the purpose. It was, per- you know, properly approved and all of that. Um, and and so initially, I think people thought this is a case about immigration. It's not. It's a, a, a case about policing. We have heard so much in this country about um, bad behavior by local police. Those allegations are far and few between when it comes to federal agencies. But in this case, there's some serious misconduct alleged on the part of federal agents that then influence the actions of the Tennessee Highway Patrol, the Morristown Police Department, who are looking to these federal agents for cues on how to behave. So the case really is about um, allegations of abuse of a power and, and abuse of uh, police power in particular, uh, brutality, misconduct, and also targeting people because of their skin color. Now, you made reference to a video earlier. The Tennessee Lookout is trying to get that unsealed. Is that correct? Yes. Um, you know, I examined uh, this case was filed in 2019, and there have been uh, over 700 documents uh, with dozens of of exhibits and things. It's a lot of records. And I went through those and began to realize that there was some video of a specific instance of alleged misconduct. Um, And and so the more I dug, uh, the more I realized that the government was trying to keep this thing under wraps. Uh, I discovered based on depositions that it showed this agent with his boot on the neck of a man that's face down with his hands behind his back. No reason at all uh, for uh, that officer to put his boot on this guy's neck and keep it there, very much as happened in the George Floyd death. Uh, And so once uh, I discovered that, I went to the executive editor of the Tennessee Lookout, Holly McCall, and state's newsroom, and they very wisely chose to hire a lawyer and fight for release of this video. The public needs to see what the agent did, good or bad. Now, you've been covering courts for years. From that perspective, what stands out to you about this case? You know, I I think that it gives the public a, a really good opportunity, provided that this video and other records are uh unsealed and made public, it provides us a really good window to judge whether or not policing uh, in Tennessee uh, is a problem. And I think it uh, opens up a discussion on, uh, on, on what we are willing as a society to tolerate uh, from uh, federal agents and local police and what we should not tolerate. 
You know, this story got a lot of attention at the time. The New Yorker even sent a reporter to East Tennessee. Now that this class action lawsuit is moving forward, what do you think people still misunderstand about the case? You know, I will say this. I think that people, the knee-jerk reaction to this case was, you know what, if you're here illegal, then you deserve what you get. Uh, I don't agree with that statement, but I also think that um, there's a big difference between what these agents could have done, and that was to amass evidence that particular workers in that plant were undocumented. They could have then gone to a magistrate judge and requested a proper search warrant. That's not what they did. They deceived a federal judge. Another federal judge has already ruled that, that there is evidence that they knowingly deceived a federal judge in the Eastern District. So I want people to pay attention, uh, not so much the issue of immigration, but uh, the issue of policing. You mentioned there are a lot of documents in this case. I'm sure you will be very busy as you continue to cover it. What are you keeping an eye on as this develop continues to develop? Well, you know, just recently I've gotten, I call it a data dump, but uh, essentially the judge has unsealed a lot of records. Um, And these are from inside. These are the agent's own records. And so I'm already looking at, for instance, text messages between these agents that were the most charitable description would be tacky. Um, and, uh, and also showing the level of pre-planning on this thing. Um, and, and, and agents, not all the agents that were involved in this thing were really on board. Uh, one of the things I've looked at is some deposition testimony that suggests there was at least one agent who said, hey, guys, we really need to go about this a different way. Um, and they just ignored him. So I, I do have a story planned uh, soon that will uh, give people a real inside look from the agent's perspective of of the months leading up to this raid and then the day of this raid. And we'll also have some news this week uh, uh, that should publish tomorrow on the status of that video that we've gone to court to uh, fight for the public's right to see it. Well, that was Tennessee Lookout reporter Jamie Satterfield, who has been following the legal ramifications of the 2018 Southeastern Provision Raid in Bean Station. Jamie, thank you for your work, and thanks for being with us today. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about peer support and meet some people who've turned their life experience into a way of helping others. Have you done peer support work or benefited from it? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Nina Cardona, and this is Nashville. Peer support is a term you might hear in mental health, disease and addiction recovery work. The idea is really just what it sounds like. Support provided by people who have been there, done that, and are still walking the walk. There's one organization in Memphis that's really leaning into this approach. It's called A Better Way. It's dedicated to keeping dirty needles off the street and out of use. 
Recently, our producer Tasha A.F. Lemley spent an evening with them to see what peer support work looks like on the ground. We have very few rules. It's, uh, you know, no judgment, no expectation. You know, that's the, those are the top two. Uh, and unfortunately, the third most and final rule is dead addicts don't recover. So our everything we do here is trying to keep the addict alive. Ron Bobel started A Better Way after he lost his own son to an overdose. He wanted a way to keep other people's kids alive and as healthy as possible until if and when they're ready to enter treatment. There's already a challenge for services. You know, we don't have enough detox beds. We don't, you know, so not always are they ready to go either. So in the meantime, we're doing our damnedest to make sure that we're following the policies of harm reduction. We want to give them a clean rig for every time that they're using. Okay, so this is kind of a controversial piece of this sort of harm reduction work. But we'll save that nuanced discussion for another day. Still, this speaks to Ron's goal, keeping these folks alive and safe. And who better to do that than people who have been through this themselves? And the magic that happens here when it gets going, you'll see, you'll see the, the empathy that these people have on the other side of the table. Everybody on the other side of the table has lived experience, so that's the true magic of what we do. Over six hours one Friday night last month, nearly 100 people cycled in and out of an abandoned Shoney's parking lot east of Memphis. About a dozen peer supporters are on hand to facilitate syringe exchange, tend to wounds, provide food, and generally support. Jennifer Dancy is one. How do you identify? Huh? How do you identify? It's awesome. <laughs> and I, you, can, uh, you can define it. I know, I'm real. <laughs> Tonight she's helping CS. They only ask for initials here to maintain some anonymity. She's getting his used syringe count and seeing what else he might need to know. What have you used in the last 30 days? Uh, marijuana and methamphetamine. How many times do you inject a day? Maybe once or twice. Jennifer offers HIV and hepatitis C testing. They talk over STD production and fentanyl test strips. And as always, there's the offer of remark. Are you interested in treatment options at all? Uh, no. Not, to, not, uh, not today. Okay, well, if you decide you want to talk about it, I am someone with lived experience. So I'm going to give you my card. You can call or text. I'm not going to push you to do anything, but... Um, we can go through all the options if you want to. A couple minutes later, and they're both standing and embracing. CS breaks down. He's grieving over a newly incarcerated friend who he can't go see because of his own ongoing legal issues. I haven't forgotten about you. This everybody knows. I just got able to jail myself, so I got a case going on. And it made me having that case. It means I can't go see you no more. CS says he hopes she knows he hasn't forgotten about her. He's just deep in his own stuff. He's facing drug possession charges that are likely a felony. Jennifer recommends drug court. And even if it's a felony, when you graduate, it'll be expunged. And it's not as hard as people make it out to be. It's really not. They're really amazing people there. So Jennifer knows from experience some of what CS is feeling. She's a survivor of addiction and incarceration, and she brings this experience to her work as a certified peer recovery specialist. All of it is based off of what you go through while you're using, and that's the best way you can help somebody. So to have somebody say, hey, I know what it's like, and I've been through it, and here I am on the other side, you know, it, it, 
it's different than having a physician or you know a, a psychiatrist try to help you because how how can like they can read a book but they haven't been through it well, we just heard that scene in Memphis, but peer support is at the heart of addiction recovery work here in Nashville, too. And to help us understand what that involves, I'd like to introduce my next guest. Ashley Shockley is a certified peer recovery specialist with Park Center. Martha Dotson has been a member at Park Center for more than 20 years. And Jordan Young is a certified peer recovery specialist with the Tennessee Mental Health Consumers Association. So first off, Ashley, what is peer support? So peer support is someone who is self-identified as being in recovery from mental illness, substance abuse, or co-occurring disorders um, of both. And it's about shared experience and receiving help from someone who has been there and kind of, you know, walked in your shoes. Jordan, as a peer, how would you sum up what's different between what you offer to a person in recovery as compared to, say, a doctor or a psychiatrist? Absolutely. Thank you for um, asking that question. I think the difference is the validation and connection that we receive and can give as a peer in recovery. Um, we have the lived experience. We've, we've been there and done that, as, as was said earlier. And there's a level of trust that's built, and I've seen it on both ends. I've been fortunate to, to be someone early in recovery who needed hope more than anything. And I was given that from someone who had, who had been there and done that. And I've also been fortunate to see it um, as a CPRS and how we can instill hope through our journey of recovery. Martha, you've been working with Ashley. What was your first reaction when you started meeting with her? Oh, I was uh, really glad that we shared our recovery experience. I'm quite a bit older than Ashley, but I can relate to her. And uh, the therapeutic value of one addict helping another is without parallel. And uh, we're all aware of uh, tragedy and, uh, the, you know, just the miserable life an addict has. And the, the worst thing is that a lot of us just don't make it. And uh, Ashley's been so very helpful to me. Well, and as you've gotten to know each other better, how has that relationship been different from other kinds of health that you have been offered in recovery? Um. I just feel like we're kindred spirits. I recognize something of me in her, and uh, hopefully, you know, I can help her along her journey as well. How uh, important is it to, to ha- I, what I'm hearing from you is that you don't feel so alone. Right. How important is that? Right. That, that's everything. You know, addiction is an isolating disease. It makes you feel like you're just utterly unique and nobody cares. And uh, to see... That somebody else actually cares is just life-saving. Did you sense that with Ashley right away? Yes, I did. (laughs) Ashley, you come to these sessions with Martha with your own experience, but there's also a certification process, right? How how does that work? So you have to have, I believe it's 18 months clean and sober uh, or in recovery from a mental illness. Um, There is a 40-hour train. I think it's 40 hour a week training course that you have to go through that's certified by the state of Tennessee. Um, And then you have to get recommendation letters and things like that. From your perspective, Jordan, how important is that training and certification? It is extremely important. Um, We all come to the training with our lived experience. um, And we take that and we, we go to the training and we learn so many new skills that we can use to support our peers. We learn about 
um, motivational interviewing skills. We learn how to interact appropriately and with healthy boundaries. We learn how to be a professional. And I do believe that as CPRSs, we are professionals and the value is in our lived experience and uh, along with the training that we receive. What made you want to do it? (laughs) Well, what made me want to be uh, in this field was definitely just the conviction to want to help and, and support others. And, you know, when I, when I was receiving support from a peer as someone who was living um, with co-occurring disorders, it just made all the difference in the world. So I wanted to be able to give back, um, and that's what kind of led me to this. What about you, Ashley? What, what made you decide to, to make that step? So when I was in treatment, um, there were several several people there that were actually in recovery. Um, and for me, it was mind-blowing to see people that had actually stopped using and stopped drinking. Uh, I never thought that I would be able to stop. I never thought that I would get out of that lifestyle. And to see people who had succeeded in that gave me hope. And that's what it's all about. It's all about hope. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm Nina Cardona, sitting in for your host, Khalil Ekulona. We're talking this hour about how peer support is helping people in recovery for addiction. Jordan, these days you are a peer counselor, but how did you encounter peer support in your own recovery? So in my own recovery, I entered a treatment facility. I was very blessed and fortunate. Um to have that chance. And at that facility, I also was surrounded by, as Ashley kind of mentioned, a lot of folks in recovery who were also peer supporters. They were, um, they had been there, done that, and then they had, um, they had achieved that, that point where they wanted to give back as well. And that's really what made the difference for me. Um, there's something that I'd like to share um, with, goes along with hope, and it's hearing other people's experiences. And so the acronym HOPE, right, hearing other people's experiences. Someone, uh, a young lady who I work with who's really inspirational shared that with me, but it really resonated with me. And I think that experience is what gave me hope, hearing other people when I was just a young a young man, you know, just, just newly into this thing, trying to figure it out. Someone was there beside me trying to help me figure it out. Is there a moment that you remember from that experience of hearing somebody else's story that just like, all of a sudden unlocked something in you. Sure, yeah. I remember sitting in a room for, you know, scared, nervous, um, and and sitting in a room and someone came to speak. And as he was speaking and sharing his recovery journey, I connected with him. I I saw myself almost like looking in the mirror. And I said, oh my gosh, that's me. And then he went on and he talked about kind of the tools he used and how he was able to, you know, overcome it, kind of come to the other side of it. And it, it just showed me that it's possible, right? Recovery is possible. And yeah, it just, it was made all the difference for me. Ashley, did you have a moment like that? I did. I had a very similar experience. It's just kind of, you have that moment where the light bulb goes off uh, and you you recognize yourself in someone else and you see that hope there and, and you know that it's possible because, you know, when I was in my active addiction, I thought, like I said, that I would never make it out, that my life was over. Um, And then, you know, by the grace of God, I was able to get to treatment. And I I don't know, just working with people who had been there and done that was incredible. And it absolutely changed my way of thinking. I I can imagine that there's, it's one thing to have that kind of a little bit of that feeling in the room. But then when you walk out the door, it's something else. Do you remember that feeling when you realized I'm actually holding on to some hope when I walk out of the door? I mean, what what did that feel like? It felt 
incredible. It was empowering, you know, to to realize that I had gained this knowledge and that I was able to help someone else. Uh, and though, and when I started working in recovery, you know, and, and seeing that look in people's eyes when they're like, oh, and their light bulb went off um, and being able to kind of hold their hand and guide them on their path to recovery. Martha, through this process, have you started to feel and think differently about yourself and your possibilities? Oh, oh, for sure. I always had a negative self-image. I'm an introverted person. I think um, that's what led me to using drugs in the first place. Um, and I'm still learning, you know, the older I get. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm almost 70 years old, and I'm, I learn things from newcomers, you know. And, uh, yeah. Do you have, you know, we just talked about some moments that, that these guys had in their recovery process before they became peer supporters. Have you had that kind of moment that's helped you kind of unlock something and move forward? Uh, it's been a process. It wasn't like a bolt of lightning that just came down on me. My higher power speaks to me through other people, and mm -hmm. I can relate and, and hear from my higher power through other people, and that gives me a great amount of strength. Well, let's look at the flip side of this. Ashley, how has working with Martha changed you? We were actually talking about this on the way to the studio. So my job, I work with people who are, you know, in active addiction or are newly in recovery. And that reminds me so much of what it was like and what I don't want to go back to. Um, so these guys, you know, they help keep me sober. Jordan, what about you? What has it meant to be able to offer peer support to other people? It's been a life-changing experience. It's been one of the most incredible things that I could ever do or feel. Uh, being able to help someone else and, and just say, it's okay, I understand. I've been there. It's been just the most amazing thing. And I can see that light bulb go off. I can, I can feel that connection. It's hard to describe. Uh, it's been very amazing. One, um, one specific um, example is, you know, just helping someone to find a job. That's how I started in peer support, was actually helping through supported employment and kind of getting to know somebody and, you know, you feel a little tension. And rather than being really clinical, um, I just shared, hey, look, I, I understand what you're going through. It's okay. It's okay. And shared a little bit, self-disclosed a little of my story. And he just kind of eased up and we worked together just perfectly since from then on, so. You mentioned the word clinical. Martha, how important is it to have that person who you're able to talk to about these things and it's not clinical? Oh, it's it's very important. I've been on both sides of that. I've had, you know, I've sought help through medicine, religion, and psychiatry, and nobody uh, can help like somebody that's been there. And uh, addiction is an isolating disease, and uh, just the empathy... And the uh, recognition in somebody else does give you hope. You know, sometimes we think of addiction as kind of a before and after. Martha, you mentioned that it's it's a very much an ongoing string mm -hmm. of experiences for you. Mm -hmm. um, and that you keep learning. Ashley, do you feel that way too? Absolutely. I learn something new about myself every day and about recovery. It's never, you know, you're never just recovered. You are always recovering. Jordan, has offering this peer support helped your ongoing recovery? I 
Yes, <laughs> I can't even <laughs> express how much I am a different, I feel like a different person because one of the keys of peer support is mutuality, mm-hmm. meaning that we're all learning from one another. Uh, we're leveling the playing field. We're all just in recovery together. We're all learning these new experiences and we're all going through d- different things and, and learning how to figure it out just side by side. So I have grown leaps and bounds in my own recovery and I'm grateful every day to be a part of uh, peer, uh, the peer support movement. Ashley, how necessary do you feel this kind of support is in Nashville right now? I think it's incredibly important in Nashville right now, um, especially since COVID, because, you know, people are struggling more now than ever with mental illness and substance abuse. And, you know, there's not access to psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, things like that. There's a shortage of those folks right now. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, we are there to hold their hand and help them through this time in their lives until they can get that clinical help. And even, you know, when they start receiving that help, we're still there. Jordan, is there anything that you think people should know? about the kind of importance of peer support in recovery? Well, it depends on how much time we have. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that peer support can definitely help us to bridge the gap. You know, um, peer support on its own is is a piece of recovery that I think can help us enhance overall um, better outcomes for folks living with mental illness and co-occurring disorders. I think it can be an incredible, um, incredible thing for the healthcare community and for those living with mental illnesses and co-occurring disorders. Well, we've just been speaking with Ashley Shockley of the Park Center, joined by Martha Dotson and fellow certified peer recovery specialist Jordan Young with the Tennessee Mental Health Consumers Association. I'd like to thank all of you for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. We have to take a short break. Up next, we look at how peer support helps people grappling with the impact of severe illnesses. Have you navigated a big challenge with the help of someone who has been there and done that? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Cardona, and this is Nashville. When a doctor breaks the news that you've got a serious condition, she can lay out a treatment plan, tell you what your odds are, give you all the ins and outs of how the disease works on a body, but chances are the doc can't really tell you how it will feel physically, emotionally to be that kind of sick. My next guest know firsthand just how important it can be to talk with someone who's actually been through what you're experiencing to help you through some of the hardest times. Sean Mark is a support services specialist at Nashville Cares, and Steve Wright is a lung cancer survivor. Steve, Sean, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. Steve, I understand you've really beaten the odds as they were first given to you. Tell me about your diagnosis. Well, I was diagnosed with Uh, non-small cell lung cancer and I was taken back a little bit because it had been 30 years since I had smoked and I I didn't have a big smoking history and so um, they they told me in the course of two days over Christmas that I went from having a backache to I was going to be dead in four to six months and it was it I mean, it 
took my breath away, but it took everything away. It was, it was such a shock. And my family was there for me, and countless of friends were there for me. And I had a tremendous village. But there was nobody standing in the middle of all of this that understood what it was like to get that diagnosis and to think that your life was over very shortly. I had two young kids, six and eight, and um, and it, it stopped. My life just stopped. And so I think what, what happened was I went looking for help quickly. I went to, to Livestrong in Austin, and I found people to talk to and counselors and things. But it didn't really... It didn't really get better until I found other people who were in the same situation I was in, mm -hmm. that they had been diagnosed with a terminal illness, and that for me it was people who were going to try to live with that illness and not give up. And speaking of living with the illness, let, let's be clear, you were given four to six months to live, but how long ago was that? Ten and a half years. <laughs> so you have lived with what was supposed to be a death sentence hanging over your head I have, for a I, very long time. I have to tell you, if if I had, I, no one was as interested at that point in my own survival as I was. Right. And if I hadn't gone looking for information, I would have listened to my oncologist and I would have gotten my affairs in order and I would have been gone by now. As a matter of fact, that oncologist told me after we discovered the genetic mutation, which was just beginning to be known about, he said, well, you're the first person that, that I've ever had in my practice that had an ALK gene rearrangement in their lung cancer. And that has been what the reason you've been able to, to yes. live all this time, right? Yeah, because there is a genetic uh, shift in one part of my cancer, which was the mechanism of reproduction. And there just happened to be a drug that they were working on. But my answer to that doctor that day was, I'm not the only one. The rest of them are just dead. Right. Now, you made a big move several years into your cancer treatment. How did you find a community here in Nashville that understood what you were going through? You know, I... I was so lucky when I came to Nashville. Somebody recommended to me to go to Gilda's Club, and I had never heard of it. I came from Austin, Texas, which was a big city, and there was no Gilda's Club. And this was a place where there was this this gigantic building, and there were support groups, and there were nutrition classes, and there were exercise classes, and there were counselors, and there were people to recommend medical specialties and things like that, all housed specifically for people with cancer. And it's a, a resource that is invaluable and somewhat underutilized in a way because everybody who is, is wondering about their cancer diagnosis and everybody's wondering how they're going to move forward and everybody who is wondering if they're getting the right care should be interacting with Gilda's Club. Are there conversations you're able to have at Gilda's Club that you feel like you really couldn't have with friends or family? I've been in the same support group since I came to Nashville in 2016, the first time. And 
the people in there also are um, living with terminal diagnosis or chronic conditions. And yes, none of these people are people that I would have mixed with probably in the outside world, but they knew something that I knew that nobody else knew. And you can't continue to talk to your spouse about, I'm thinking about dying and I'm worried about the kids and I'm worried about you. And I'm wor-. I mean, it, people, it, people say to me, you know, I thought you were dead. <laughs> and the, or they say, aren't you well yet? Hmm. And the truth is there's a whole bunch of us operating in that lane that is not with the people who are running their lives and going to work and doing all the rest of the things. And we're not dying either. We're in, but every three months I go to get scans to find out if the cancer has progressed or not. Mm-hmm. And over these 10 and a half years, we've fought many battles with the cancer progressing in my body. And the medicines, fortunately for me, have caught up with it along the way. But every time you go in and get the scan, you know, you don't know what the news is going to be. And I've had it in my brains. I've had it in my adrenal glands. I've had it in my bones. I've had it in my spine. I've had it. It's it's showed up everywhere. And we've fought it back. But living like that... You can only understand it if you are. Right. You know, and so to have people who are going through the same thing and to have them really be in sort of communion with you over a long period of time is a gift. It's a gift. It's my people. (laughs) Sean, your story starts much earlier. I understand you were HIV positive at birth. Growing up, what did you understand about your disease? Yeah, uh, growing up with HIV was, I, I don't really know how to explain it other than I knew that something was different with me and I knew that people would use that difference to justify treating me uh, poorly. Um, but other than that, I, I was really sheltered um, so I, my, my adopted parents really tried to, um, make sure that I understood that, uh, I could still have a healthy life, um, but that there were things that I needed to keep to myself. Uh, and so it was about the time when I was six though, uh, I had a physician, uh, explain to me with my, um, my adopted mother at the time, what HIV actually was. And it was the cells that were inside of your body that were just trying to break your body down. Um, and so, you know, I, I had that imagery in my head growing up. Um, it was around puberty that really made things a little, little iffy for me. Um, but you know, they were all valuable lessons I learned. Um, I just wish that I had actually understood those lessons, uh, earlier in life. You mentioned feeling, knowing that you had something that was different. Did you know anybody else who was in the same boat growing so, up? So I did, um, fortunately, uh, through foster care, I actually knew uh, another individual, a friend of mine, a boy that was uh, the same age, who was also born positive. Um, he was born positive with uh, the AIDS diagnosis, whereas I was born with HIV stage 3 diagnosis. Okay. How did you try 
to cope with that. There, there are so many ripple effects, so many mm-hmm. ramifications to positive HIV status, especially when it comes to romantic relationships. How, how did you cope? Well, so I, uh, I did the best I could at coping and it was the most unhealthy thing you probably have ever seen. <laughs> I, uh, decided to go ahead and jump into whatever kind of things I wanted to enjoy. Uh, as a child, I was always subject to overhearing physicians tell my parents that, um, you know, he's probably not going to make it after two years or he's definitely not going to live past his 12th birthday or, you know, things along these lines. And so I really didn't put much faith into college. I didn't put much faith into being around after my thirties. Uh, and I really just ran out, joined uh, live entertainment as a roadie, uh, working sound for big bands, eventually doing stand-up myself, um, all just trying to stay under the influence uh, to the extent to where I would forget w- about what was really going on in my body. Um, and honestly, all of that, interestingly enough, um, I moved to Nashville uh, not because of uh, the recovery uh, network that is here, which I learned is a massive uh, recovery network, uh, but it was actually for HIV services uh, at Nashville Cares uh, because I had run away from HIV stuff for so long. Um, Nashville Cares brought me here. Um, just seeing that I could see their stuff online, I was in another state. And I came here, enrolled in their services, and uh, about a year later actually stopped drinking and, and sobered up and started really falling in with their per, uh, peer services that they offer there. And well, and that's what I was about to ask is what role peer support then played in helping kind of turn things around for you? Yeah, definitely. So um, when I first started getting involved with their peer groups, um, just as a client, uh, it was before I had quit drinking. And so I, I came in and the way things were, were ran then at the time was coming from the perspective of somebody who had gained the diagnosis uh, through, through living a life. Um, whereas they hadn't exactly prepared any sort of dialogue for anybody who was born uh, with the condition. Um, so I know that me coming through, being all snarky and, and honestly drunk some of the sessions, uh, really kind of made them think about, well, you know, there is other um, avenues to explore with reaching out to people who are positive. Um, and so that really encouraged me with them being so open to that to volunteer. Um, During 2020, I actually volunteered with them to help hand out fresh produce to their clients. We serviced about 1,200 clients every month uh, for 10 months that year. Um, And through that, they actually invited me to uh, apply and to join them uh, working with them. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm Nina Cardona. We're talking about the way people with severe illnesses can find comfort and camaraderie with each other. My guests are Steve Wright and Sean Mark. Steve, how much of the peer support you've experienced is about navigating cancer treatment and how much is about the way that it changes your daily life and relationships? I I think it's both because I've been now with this group of eight people doing a support group every Monday uh, for since 2016 now. And... Um, even when I we went away to New York and we went to Texas, now we're back here, we were able to go online because of the pandemic. So I never lost my support group, even during that time. And so these people encourage me 
you know, when I start to say things like, well, when this medicine is, is going to build resistance and, you know, someone will stop me and say, why are you saying that? Why are you putting that out to the world? You know, we, we help each other in almost every aspect of dealing with the cancer. Sometimes people will go with us to our scans if we're feeling uncomfortable, you know, or, um, we talk about our kids, we talk about the intimate relationship with our partners, mm -hmm. you know, and how this cancer is affecting that kind of thing. And, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a whole world wrapped up with these people. And I have, it's a level of comfort that I have with my illness now. I, I've even come to see my illness as, um, you know, something uh, like a symbiotic relationship. You know, it's a, it's, a, mm. it's a spoiled child that's trying to wreck it for both of us. You know, <laughs> that's quite the image, <laughs> but you know, that's the kind of things that we explore with each other, you know? Right. And, and like I said, everybody doesn't want to keep hearing about your illness, you know, and you can't keep putting that on them and your kids, they don't want to hear about that. But these people in my support group do. And, and so there's always a place for me to take these feelings well, you mentioned that move to online groups at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and of course, we've all learned so much in the past few years about what can be done from a distance, what interactions really aren't the same unless they're in person. Um, how has that played out for your groups? Yeah, um, so uh, at Nashville Cares, uh, our psychosocial groups, we actually did make the transfer to online as well. And that that's actually been really helpful. Um, we do service 13 counties here in the Middle Tennessee area. So uh, it really actually advances the amount of clients participation that we can have. Um, seeing as though, or as many of our clients do have mobility issues who are in further rural counties. So they are able to log in and, and join in in our, uh, our groups. And that's just been a remarkable thing for sure. Yeah. Is there something that's lost when you're when you're not able to be there in the room together? I, I think if we hadn't been together initially, I mean, for a couple of years before I went on to New York, uh, maybe, but we bring new people into our group, not infrequently, and we're able to blend them in and to, to support them, I think, in in a better way a lot of times because it's hard for somebody to get across Nashville to sit in a room and talk and then get yourself back if you're feeling if you're feeling tired and fatigued anyway mm -hmm. so i don't know i think it adds a i think it adds a possibility not a problem and whereas i would uh, i would say yes i definitely do see that as a pro i i think the only uh, thing that I can say would be a con is uh, just the impact of being somewhere physically because uh, the things that I've learned in the recovery circles that I'm in is that even if you've been to the same group for three, four years and you've heard every message that everybody else there has to say, there is just that one important factor of you being there present because 
it could be somebody else's very first time being there. And just seeing that there is another person who is present and engaged, not necessarily speaking or talking, but just uh, filling a seat is very, very powerful for that, that newcomer. And, you know, when it comes with the, the Zoom meetings, I, I really do love them. It, it afforded me an opportunity to present uh, globally at the International Conference of Stigma last year. But it does, th there is a point where once you have 60 participants, 80 participants, 140 participants, and you're in an open format setting meeting where, you know, you want to be able to talk and open the floor to whoever, it makes it a little complicated. It does make it a little hard. Um, and then there is also the learning curve for some some clients who haven't actually been engaged with the online um, meetings just yet because it is still relatively new of everything. And then that can eat up time in your meetings and, and such. But overall, no, I really do love the online things, but I really do miss the in-person fellowship um, that we used to be able to get. We At Gildas, we have been fortunate to get grants and we have software or hardware and software that allows people to sit in the meetings at Gildas and also bring in the rest of the group that isn't there. Yeah. So they're a hybrid, I guess you would call them. So who needs to be there can be there and who doesn't feel like they can be yeah, there. Yeah, if you can't, if you just don't feel like you can be there that weekend, these are smaller groups, mm -hmm. granted. But um, I, I really do feel like... Um, it's been a blessing. Well, that is cancer survivor Steve Wright and Sean Mark from Nashville Cares. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, it's National Thrifting Day. And to celebrate, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our thrift and vintage episode. This is Nashville it is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Debbie Barnett, Vic Moore, Anthony Fox, Nicholas Calvin, and Ashley Blum. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out a quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.